0: You're listening to The Road with pastor teacher, Steve Holt.
1: Gary, the historian writes, the Puritan man leading his family endeavored to make a church out of his family, laboring that those that were born in it might be born again to God through it. It was Jonathan Edwards who wrote, may every home be a little church.
0: At The Road, our mission is to empower people to change the world. For more information on The Road, visit theroad.org. We hope you are encouraged by today's message from pastor teacher, Steve Holt.
1: Well, um, this is Thanksgiving week coming up. And for you that have been with me through the years, you know that from time to time, I do two messages in a row. One, on the Puritans or the Separatists. And then the next week I do it on the Puritans. But because Advent, the first week of Advent, the first Sunday of Advent is next Sunday, which comes early this year. I felt that I had to make a choice because I wanted to finish Nehemiah, which we finished last week. Ten weeks in Nehemiah. um, To decide, okay, is it Puritans or Pilgrims? And I had done something, 4th of July... Uh, before on the pilgrims and I felt like I wanted to do the message on the Puritan. So I'm giving you the second message as a first message and it's the only message that you're going to get because we go into Thanksgiving and then we go into the Advent season. And by the way, Advent's going to be so fun here, you guys. We're gonna have, it's going to look so different when you come on Sunday. It's going to be so kid-friendly. We're going to have a kid's sermon each week that takes the sermon that I'm giving, and we bring it down to a kid's level. They're going to all come up here. So it's going to be really, really fun. Well, because it's Thanksgiving, and because it's the year 2020, and we're in the unique position today of not knowing who the President of the United States is actually going to become. And because of all the controversy swirling around the voter count, I felt like we should open with Jeremiah 6, 16. So would you turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 6, 16. Now, I've done something I rarely do, but I did it this time. I didn't like any of the translations that were NIV, ESV, or NKJV. And that would be the New International Version, New English Version, and New King James Version. So I combine them. Because <laughs> I like certain words that some used, and I like the other words that others use. So whatever translation you're using and normally, I mean, 95% of the time I'm using the New King James Version. I've actually, so you're like gonna listen and you're gonna see some different words. It's true to the text, it's just a different perspective and I decided to make a composite in what I'm going to read. So follow along and you'll see some words that probably aren't in your translation but they mean the same thing in the Hebrew. Stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I have set up watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. Now, what I'm doing today is I'm your trumpet. Okay? I am your watchman as your pastor. I am your trumpet call. And, And what I'm doing today is taking you back to the old past, to the ancient ways that I happen to believe are super important because America is exceptional and America is unique. And what makes us exceptional and unique is not that we're good at everything or that we're perfect, do not get that impression at all, but rather we're a nation that actually was given a vision no other nation of the world, some, what did we hear today, 195 nations or 197 nations of the world have the vision that God gave first the pilgrims in 1620 and then the Puritans in 1630 that formed the documentation, the foundation the documents that made the United States of America later. So we're unique and that we've been given a vision. And because we've been given a vision, I feel like it's our duty as a church to remind us from time to time what that vision is. And I want to talk about the Puritans today. It's the Puritans that gave us the original vision of the founding of America as a city on a hill. It was the Puritans that gave us the source documents for the Declaration of Independence. It was the Puritans that gave us the Protestant work ethic. It was the Puritans that gave us the Christian home. It was the Puritans that gave us integrity in the workplace. But who were the Puritans? The modern stereotype of the Puritans is one of being blue-nosed killjoys in tall black hats a somber, sin-obsessed, witch-hunting bigots, which one modern author writes, quote, whose main occupation was to prevent each other from having fun and whose sole virtue lay in their furniture. Such books as The Scarlet Letter and Arthur Miller's play about the Salem witch trials called The Crucible carried an image of the Puritans as a people preoccupied with sin and guilt. Now, men and women, there's no doubt that the Puritans took sin seriously, that they believed because they were because they were founding a new nation, because they were founding what they called a new plantation in quote New England, the New England, that they were acutely aware of the admonition that we actually covered last week of Deuteronomy 28 that if they chose to obey God they would be blessed and if they chose to disobey God they would be cursed. It was this close to them the reality of blessing or cursing. And so they took sin seriously. But Puritan as a name was mud from the start. Coined in the early 1560s in England, it was always a satirical smear implying peevishness, censorship, conceit, and a measure of hypocrisy. But to understand the Puritans, you have to understand the Church of England in the 15 and 1600s. The Church of England was smothered in tradition, was smothered in a government-paid pastorship, by which it was more important that you got your paycheck than that the people had a heart check. And so as, as the traditions began to outweigh the Bible in the Church of England, there was this group of people, this group of men and women, who believed that a spiritual movement, a kingdom revolution, a revival, though they didn't use the word revival, they used the word reformation, could happen from within the church. It was based on the teachings of Tyndale and reforming biblicism. John Bradford's piety of the heart. John Knox's zeal for God's honor in the national churches. John Hooper's passion for pastoral competence. Richard Baxter's commitment to a godly pastorate and practical Bible teaching. But at the heart, at the heart of Puritanism was revival or reformation. J.I. Packer writes, Puritanism was essentially a movement for church reform. Pastoral renewal and evangelism and spiritual revival. And in addition, indeed, as a direct expression of its zeal for God's honor, it was a worldview. A total Christian philosophy in intellectual terms. A Protestantized and updated medievalism. And in terms of spirituality, as a reformed monasticism outside the cloister and away from monkish vows. The Puritan goal was to complete what England's Reformation began. To finish reshaping Anglican worship. To introduce effective church discipline into Anglican parishes. To establish righteousness in the political, domestic, and socioeconomic fields. And to convert all Englishmen to a vigorous evangelical faith. And in the 17th century... The Puritan movement within the Church of England took off. Revival began to occur. And all across the countrysides, in the courts, in the magistrates, in the government, in society, there was this move of Puritanism taking over England. They had been the ones who condemned the separatists. This was interesting about the pilgrims. They condemned the pilgrims who left in 1620 to come to America as leaving, for leaving their country behind. But what was happening now was the Puritans were realizing because of the persecution that was arising as the, as the movement grew that it, might it be that they also should follow the pilgrims by the mid-1620s. You see the difference between the pilgrims and the Puritans one was socio-economic. The pilgrims came from the laboring class. They had very little to lose by coming to America. And when they came in 1620 and gave us the Plymouth Colony, they came, in many cases, having very, very little. But to the Puritans, they came from more of the upper classes. They were were lawyers and magistrates and government officials and and medical doctors. And for them to leave England was going to cost them so much. The pilgrims had left the Church of England, had started independent churches. And so when they came to New England, when they came to America, they came with their independent church movements. But for the Puritans, they were called Puritan because they really believed. Even by the 1620s, even by 1625, they believed that God was going to bring a revival, a reformation from within The Church of England. And they actually condemned those who had left the Church of England. Thus, the name Puritanism, the purification of the Church. But the situation changed dramatically under Charles I, 1625 to 1649. In 1628, William Laud, the Church of England's enforcer, was made Bishop of London, the most important bishopric in the country. That year marks the beginning of the great migration from England to America by the Puritans. Laud presented a list to the king. And the list had the names of all the clergy in the Church of England with either an O, which meant Orthodox, or P, which meant Puritan. And if they had the P beside their name, they were thrown into prison in many cases. And so the Puritans gradually began to believe what the pilgrims had already understood. That there was a chance that possibly America was a place where they could bring religious freedom, occupational freedom to a new land, a new England. But just like Israel of old, leaving Egypt, they needed a Moses. And that Moses was in a man named John Winthrop. John Winthrop was Cambridge-born and owning a sizable estate in Suffolk, England. Winthrop was an attorney in the court of wards. He penned these words in 1612 at the age of 24. I desire to make it one of my chief petitions to have that grace to be poor in spirit. I will ever walk humbly before my God and meekly, mildly, and gently towards all men. I do resolve first to give myself, my life, my wits, my health, and my wealth to the service of my God and Savior who, by giving himself for me and to me, deserves whatsoever I am or can be to be his commandment for his glory. And then in 1616, at the age of 28, he wrote, O Lord, thou assurest my heart that I am in a right course even the narrow way that leads to heaven. Thou tellest me and all experience tells me. That in this way there is least company. And those who do walk openly in this way shall be despised. Pointed at. Hated by the world. By my, made a byword. Reviled. Slandered. Rebuked. And made a gazing stock. So John Winthrop decided a few years later. That indeed he should go. To the New World. And here's what he wrote. What he hath planted, he will maintain. Every plantation his right hand hath not planted shall be rooted up. But his own plantation shall prosper and flourish. When he promiseth peace and safety, what enemy shall be able to make the promise of God of no effect? Neglect not walls and bulwarks and fortifications for your own defense. But ever the name of the Lord be your strong tower. And the word of his promise, the rock of your refuge, his word that made heaven and earth will not fail till heaven and earth be no more. And so in 1630, he and a group of Puritans entered the Arbella. 72 days on sea, they came to Salem, Salem, Massachusetts. And they were shocked at what they found. Of the 200 Puritan settlers who had come in the past two years, only 85 were still alive. Over 80 had died while the rest had quit and gone home. The people were disunified, starving, and quitting. And Winthrop, not unlike William Bradford, as the pilgrims came into harbor, where still in the ocean before they set foot, he wrote that famous document called the Mayflower Compact. In this case, John Winthrop wrote these words, now known as a model for Christian charity. A model for Christian charity. Quote, This love among Christians is a real thing, not imaginary. As absolutely necessary to the well-being of the body of Christ... As the sinews and other ligaments of a natural body are to the well-being of that body, we are a company, professing ourselves, fellow members of Christ, and thus we ought to account ourselves knit together in the bond of love. It continues. Thus stands the cause between God and us. We are entered into a covenant with Him for this work. We have taken out a commission. The Lord hath given us leave... To draw our own articles. If the Lord shall please to hear us and bring us in peace to the place we desire, then hath he ratified this covenant and sealed our commission, and will expect a strict performance of the articles contained in it. But if we shall neglect the observance of these articles, the Lord will surely break out in wrath against us. You understand, you see how they could understand blessing and cursing. They could understand that, that obedience put you in the fear of God of blessing. Disobedience puts you under the curse of God and a lack of blessing. He continues, and this is the, and this is the thesis. He moves into the thesis of his, his message. Now, the only way to avoid this shipwreck And to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must delight in each other, make one another's condition our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. Always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work. As members of the same body, so shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. When then of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies. When he shall make us a praise and a glory. That men... Of succeeding plantations shall say, The Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. And so Winthrop went to work. And that faltering community began to grow. One writer explained it this way. Without a doubt, a miracle took place upon Winthrop's arrival. A nearly dead colony was resurrected. And from all reports, God's single instrument in this resurrection was John Winthrop. Cotton Mather would refer to Winthrop as the Nehemiah Americanus. In reference to the Old Testament leader who had brought the Israelites back from their Babylonian exile to the promised land. And had directed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem... But more important, Nehemiah had inspired them to resume their covenant with God. Another 17th century report quoted by modern Yale historian Edmund Mogan. So soon as Mr. Winthrop was landed, perceiving what misery was like to ensue through their idleness, he presently fell to work with his own hands and thereby so encouraged the rest ...that there was not an idle person then to be found in the whole plantation. And whereas the Indians said that these newcomers would certainly return as fast as they came... ...now they admired to see in what short time they had housed themselves... ...and planted sufficient corn for their subsistence. And so men and women, as the 1630s arrived... ...Puritan communities began to flourish all over the northeastern part of the United States... And what then became known as the Great Migration, where over 20,000 Puritans came. So what can be learned? What are the lessons that we can learn from the Puritans for our own lives? And maybe for the first time, because several people mentioned it was the first time after the first service, that they had heard, oh, that's where that came from. That's why we do that. So I want to give you six. There's... Man, I could give you like 20. But I'll give you six thoughts, six principles that I see that come from the Puritans. Number one, the Puritans passionately believed that America could be a city on a hill. The Puritans passionately believed that America would be or could be a city on a hill for all of the nations. They desired to found a land where all citizens could freely worship. Freely raise their family and freely pursue an occupation without undue governmental restrictions. Quoting Jesus in Matthew 5.14, John Winthrop wrote these words that I've just quoted earlier. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. Lord, make it like that of New England for we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill. Ronald Reagan in the 1970s placed that line, a city on a hill, from this sermon by John Winthrop at the center of his political career. Tracing the story of America from John Winthrop forward, Reagan built a powerful articulation of American exceptionalism. The idea, as he explained it, was, and I quote, that that there was some divine plan That placed this great continent between two oceans. To be sought out by those who are possessed. Of an abiding love of freedom. And a special kind of courage. It was because of that strong belief in creator God. And the principles of freedom found in the Bible. That the framers of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Wrote one of the great sentences. In all. Of the history of nations. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Many women, I believe that God has made this nation great because this nation is good. And we are good Because there's something within us that still holds to that vision. There's still enough people. It may not even be the majority. But there's enough people that still believe it's true. That God set this nation to be a city on a hill. That the kingdom of God might be here as best as we can. With all the broken parts to it. And all the misaligned principles that we all as sinners struggle with. That it's still the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Number two, the Puritans believed that all work is worship. The Puritans believe that all work is worship. The banner over everything to a Puritan was holiness unto the Lord. They really believed Matthew 22, 35 through 40, that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That when a nation is built with that kind of a conviction, it matters not what you're doing seven days a week. Whether you're worshiping on Sunday morning with a host of other believers in a church, or whether you're making furniture, working as a lawyer, a doctor, or a mechanic, it's all worship. You bring your worship to work. The Puritans strongly believed that everyone was a missionary at whatever they chose to do during the week. This integration of life, liberty, and worship has been termed integrity, which means wholeness, which means that your private life and your public life are consistent. They're the same. It's called integrity. Puritan craftsmen were considered the best craftsmen in the world. Puritan lawyers were known to be the most prepared and the most articulate in the courtroom. Number three, number three. The Puritans believed in the centrality of the Bible. The Puritans believed in the centrality of the Bible. Because of their experience, you guys, with what had happened in the Church of England... And it's still a struggle with the Anglican Church in America where the Bible is not central. It hasn't been central for hundreds of years. But they had personally experienced it. They knew that the only way that worship would continue in spirit and in truth was that the Bible was at the center of all worship and teaching. Their verse that was the most prominent in these early years in the 1630s and 40s was Deuteronomy 30, 14 through 16. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live And multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you go in to possess. All Puritan magistrates in the early colonies used the Bible for law and justice matters. Puritans were known for meditation. And it's sad to see how many today think of the word meditation. They hear meditation, they think new age. Nothing could be so further from a truth from a Puritan. If we could somehow take a Puritan from the 1630s and drop him into 2020, they would say that the most important thing you can do is meditate in God's Word. And they base that on Psalm 119 and Psalm 1. That, that God's delight is in a man or a woman who meditates in God's Word. Puritans were, were deep, passionate meditators of... Men who drank deeply from God's Word and preached deeply from God's Word. Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan, would go into battle. Before he went into battle, he he prayed deep, deep prayers. Deep love of God. Number four, number four. The Puritans gave us a passion for effective action. The, Puritan gave us, the Puritans gave us a passion for effective action. The Puritans were not dreamy idealists. They had no time for daydreaming, idleness, or passivity. They were strong men of action crusading activists without a jolt of self-reliance. Workers of God who depended utterly on God to work in through them with God working within culture. The Puritans prayed long prayers. They're famous for that. So if if you went to trial and you had a Puritan lawyer in the 1640s, give it up for the first 15 minutes. Because whether it was the judge or the lawyer... They would pray for 10 to 15 minutes for God's glory to happen in that trial. And so, and so these, these are not dreamy-eyed. You guys know what I'm talking about. You guys know how much I, I appreciate the prophetic. I, profa- I, pre- I appreciate the prophetic. I've been led by the prophetic. Visions and dreams and that planted this church and other stuff that we've done in the past was because of God leading us in the prophetic. But within the prophetic, let's be honest. There I, I, I've hung out in this world for, for 25 years. And they're not Puritans much of the time. They can tend to be a little bit like out there somewhere. I don't even know what they're talking about half the time. You know, and I'm like, dude, c- come on. Come on, bring it down. This is where I live, you know. uh, I I, got to, you know, invest my money and have a church to lead. Okay, that's great about whatever you're talking about. That would not be a Puritan. Puritans were hardworking and men and women of effective action. Number five, the Puritans gave us a stable family life. They gave us, fifthly, a stable family life. How many of you either have or you're aware of the family Bible? Anybody have or are you familiar with family? Okay, I nearly brought ours today. I have in my office, not the one here, but the one at home. When you walk in my office, there is the family Bible that's been in Liz's family actually for generations. And it's about, if we close it, it's about that thick. And that would have been customary with every Puritan family. That there would be a family Bible. And here's why. Because they believed in what is called, how many have heard the term, family altar? The family altar was the family coming together every day for worship, prayer, and Bible reading. So whether it was the morning... Or whether it was an evening, a Puritan family always gathered, all the kids, everybody gathered together. Usually, my understanding, usually at the end of the day, because the men had to leave so early for work. But at the end of the day, they came and they opened the Bible, they read from the Bible, they prayed from the Bible, and they had a stable family life. The Puritan ethic of home life was based on maintaining order, courtesy, and family worship. Gree, the historian, writes, the Puritan man leading his family endeavored to make a church out of his family, laboring that those that were born in it might be born again to God through it. It was Jonathan Edwards who wrote, may every home be a little church. And that was the first gift that Liz gave me when we were dating. She She painted a picture of a little chapel and then she had the Jonathan Edwards quote on it. May every home be a little church. They believed that Christ was the head of the home. That the man was the leader of his family. And Puritan men took seriously their role as leaders over their homes. And then lastly, number six. The Puritans gave us an ideal for church reformation. The Puritans gave us an ideal for church reformation. The Puritans really believed that the church needed to be reformed again and again. Men and women, this was the the Reformation theme. One of the Reformation themes under Luther was the church always reforming. The church always reforming. Every generation has to reform the church. Some of you young people that are in this room are going to be used by God to reform the church and at this church we welcome it because we always need revival, reformation and you guys know that we built this church on the vision of a kingdom of God revolution and men and women as we look at where our country is at we look at what's happening in our nation as it relates to governments, laws fraud, corruption we need a kingdom of God revolution. It may be the only hope left for our nation over the next 20 to 30 years, if not less than that, is a kingdom of God revolution happening in the church. With pastors and lay people who are on fire for God, that are not faint hearted, but are lion hearted with the belief that God's the only one who can change our culture change our future, change our laws, and transform this nation from where it is now to where it could be if we allow God to move across this land with great revival fire. So may that be true. May that be our prayer. And may the Puritans be an inspiration to us, to some men who came here risking everything they had to build a land that they wanted to be a city on a hill.